Okay, gang, I'm back, and hopefully this is the last audio episode before I'm able to see you guys in person and to begin to use these also to talk to you and reply to some of your thoughts. For now, I'm just going to get right to it. Oliver Wendell Holmes and The Path of the Law, and this is the second of of these two introductory pieces, which are obviously important in their own right, but also frame up a lot of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the semester. Let me just start by mentioning that what you're reading is a speech. Given on the dedication of a new building at BU, Boston University School of Law, back in 1897. And I think that's, that matters because the, you know, the, the audience for this speech, certainly professors, but also law students. And Holmes is very, I think you can read, directly trying to influence uh, not outcomes. He goes through outcomes in particular kinds of, uh, in particular cases, particular areas of the law. But he's more interested in the way people do law, the way they think about it. And he's speaking to the next generation of lawyers and to the people who will shape the next generation of lawyers. It kind of reminds me of what I read um, Justice Scalia said one time about his dissents that when he writes, his audience is you guys. It's law students, and it probably has some of the same purpose behind it. Right, the purpose is to influence you to recognizing that you're the next generation, and and that speaking directly to you and is, is the best way of achieving a legacy. Okay, then. So, so what is Holmes up against? What what is he trying to change? Well, we see in this piece an attack on a few different conceptions of law. Law as a branch of morality, law as a branch of logic, law as a branch of history. Each of which, I guess if you had to tie these things together and figure out what they had in common, it was, um, I, I think it's the idea that law is something that judges find. It is something that they use a method to discover. It is something that about which there are right answers. The whole point of this piece is that law is none of those things. Law is practical and theoretical at the same time. It is a thing which is constantly made and remade uh, by judges and and other lawmakers. So the the piece is organized in the following way. First, Holmes gives a, a preview of, of his ultimate thesis that, that law is prophecy. All law is is a prediction of what a judge will do when confronted by two people who are fighting and both appealing to the law for resolution. That is what the law is. Uh, everything that comes before that is just evidence about what will happen in the future. After stating that, he goes on to attack, alternately, the picture of law as morality, law as logic, and law as history before returning to the idea of legal theory and the importance of theory in thinking about what law is and in law's practice. Okay, so let's let's turn first of all to the idea of prophecy. And I'm just going to do each of these areas and ask you a few questions to think about for our discussion. So, first thing I'd have you think about is his framing. From the very beginning, Holmes takes a certain view of what's going on in the law and and everything seems to to follow from that. And that framing is one of um where where the state is a powerful violent force and it has a monopoly on that violence. Given that, you know, that there's this violent force that people can call upon and the decision to be made is whether that force will be used. And he says, the object of our study then is prediction, the prediction of the incidence of the public force through the instrumentality of the courts. 
that's what people want to know. Uh, do you, so what, what do you think about that? Do you agree that law is basically the, the calculus we have for deciding whether the state will act violently? Is it just about the rules under which we will coerce or the, the fact that we will or will not coerce? Think about that a little bit when you're thinking about like advising a client or representing someone in a trial. What, what are you actually doing there? What are you trying to do? To what reasons are you appealing in the judge? The key move here for Holmes is to say that all legal data, all the old reporters, statutes, everything written up until the moment of decision in court is just basically evidence to predict what courts are likely to do in that moment. So the law is, and nothing more than this, it is what courts do. And so to know law is to be good at making those kinds of predictions. So I can think of one judge who couldn't disagree with this more, and that's Judge Foster, the mythical judge from uh, the last piece that we read, Fuller's Spelunking Explorers piece. And, and for Foster, law was an expression of morality. Underlying moral principles were a premise of the law. And so you couldn't even understand the law without reference to morality. Holmes really takes the... I don't know if it's exactly opposite, but it's a, it's a very different approach and says that to understand the law, we need to look at it not as a person endeavoring to deduce the deepest principles of morality, but as a bad man, as an evil person who complies with the law only because he or she fears its consequences. So to know the law and the way Holmes says it and nothing else is to know how the law looks from the perspective of the bad man, the man who has no interest in the law for its own sake, no interest in taking the law as a guide to his conduct, but instead as a signal of when the power of the state, when the violence that the state can wield might be used against him. What do you think about that? Do you, do you agree? Is that a good understanding of law? Do we miss anything with that? How does this compare with Judge Foster from the last case? Is there some wisdom that we miss from by looking at law from the bad man's perspective? Is there some wisdom that we gain? Does it give us insights we wouldn't have otherwise? So when we're making law, when we're deciding between different outcomes, between different designs, we should be concerned with what's actually going to happen to the bad man, what the bad man is actually going to experience should he run afoul of our law. So he, Holmes gives an example of uh, the debate over a penalty in a, in a tax, and the bad man doesn't care about this. The bad man only cares whether he'll have to pay up and whether there will be, if any, uh, collateral consequences from this. Funny the, that he mentions um, penalty and a tax, since, as you probably know, the difference between a penalty and a tax was key to upholding Obamacare back in Obamacare 1. And that's not the only kind of prescient observation here. I mean, uh, Holmes also gives us a little detail about what is essentially efficient breach of contract, the notion that the the penalty for breaking a contract is compensation for what is lost. And that's that's the way the bad man sees the breach of contract. You know, he, the bad man sees it as an alternative between paying and doing. This approach, seeing the law as a as a bad man would, is is part of Holmes' effort to see law consequentially. 
to see it as trying to achieve good results for society. It is not a system written in the stars that we're trying to understand. It is a set of tools made by us to achieve ends that we care about. And seeing law as the bad man does allows us to see what will happen. It's a it's a thought exercise we can go through to see what will happen under various approaches to the law. And our job is to pick what will be best. So that's maybe from the legal engineer's perspective, the judge's perspective, but also from the lawyer's perspective. When you're advising a client, you have to make predictions about what the law is likely to be, what judges are likely to do. And, and so this is the enterprise, not abstract deduction. Okay, and so if, if law is not about deduction from first moral principles, what is the connection between law and morality for Holmes? I want you to think on that question. How are law and morals related for Oliver Wendell Holmes? And in particular, think about his discussion of efficient breach of contract and tort duties, his external sign understanding of contract formation and meeting of the minds. And, and then this other issue, he talks about language. He, he wishes that we could develop different words for legal concepts that aren't the same as their moral counterparts. Do you think the style of talk affects outcomes? Should we reserve moral language for exclusively moral choices and have legal language for legal choices? Or do you think there's some benefit to having morally laden terms appear scattered throughout the law? All right, well, think on that. We'll come back to this and and talk more about it. Let's move, though, to Holmes' second critique. This is the critique of law as a purely logical enterprise, that there are basic principles in the law, and that if you know those principles, and if you deduce properly, if you apply logic kind of remorselessly and relentlessly and correctly, you will arrive at correct results. So one consequence of this is that if people disagree, somebody's got to be wrong, right? And, and Holmes doesn't just think that this way of thinking is wrong, but he thinks it's downright dangerous. And the danger, here's what he says, the danger of which I speak is not the admission that the principles governing other phenomena, physical phenomena, also govern the law, but the notion that a given system, ours for instance, can be worked out like mathematics from some general axioms of conduct. And then he says, behind the logical form lies a judgment as to the relative worth and importance of competing legislative grounds. Often an inarticulate and unconscious judgment it is true, and yet the very root and nerve of the whole proceeding. You can give any conclusion a logical form. Boy, so, that, I mean, that's worth reading and, and listening to again, that behind the logical form lies a judgment as to the relative worth and importance of competing legislative grounds. Behind what looks like logic is preference. And there are often two possible choices, if not more, that both could be given logical form. This is, the, again, the experience of, of reading a majority opinion, having it sound great, reading a dissent opinion, and having it sound great, and kind of throwing up our hands. We are in the position of, again, from the fuller piece from last time, here Judge Tatting, who threw up his hands, finding that each outcome seemed unappealing to him, that he couldn't choose, he, he couldn't identify the law, and he thought, therefore, could not be a judge. But Holmes is saying that, you know, choosing among indeterminate options is the essence of judging. It is the essence of judging. Okay, and then as if to illustrate this in another somewhat amazing short passage, Holmes goes on to talk about the openness of the choice between negligence and strict liability. 
you know, suggesting that, hey, it used to be that people were injured in maybe too many different ways to count, all kinds of idiosyncratic ways. And now they're working in factories and and are injured in kind of predictable ways, manufacturing things. And and maybe it makes more sense in an age of mass production for the predictable injuries that occur in the manufacture of goods that we all consume, for those injuries to be spread over all of the consumers of those things. And strict liability is a mechanism basically of the consumers ultimately insuring the workers who produce the goods. Uh, It's a rather remarkable kind of explanation of what's come to be known as enterprise liability. And here it is, you know, in the um, before 1900 in Path of the Law. And, And what Holmes is saying here is not so much arguing for either position, but suggesting that that choice is open, that to choose between one or the other kind of depends on circumstance. It depends on the nature of society. It depends on what makes sense what most advantages that society. It doesn't uh, follow. There's no logic. There's no ultimate axiom and lot, a series of logical deductions that can lead you to one or the other. This leads Holmes to say that the danger here, again, is that judges don't disclose the openness of that choice. Either they don't see it or they hide it, the fact that they have a policy judgment to make. And this is dangerous because it obscures from the public the truth about what's happening. And, and we'll talk more about this passage, but I'll, I'll just read the, the last part of it, where Holmes says, I cannot but believe that if the training of lawyers led them habitually to consider more definitely and explicitly the social advantage on which the rule they lay down must be justified, they sometimes would hesitate where now they are confident and see that really they were taking sides upon debatable and often burning questions. Okay, a lot more to say about this, but I want to ask you to think about some questions for our discussion. First, how how are cases decided if not with logic or morality? Are they in an important sense indeterminate so that judges can decide however they wish? Do logic and morality provide any constraint? What is the constraint? We'll see that Holmes doesn't think that it's history or precedent. Uh, We'll see that next. What, What are the constraints on using a judge's own preferences. So what are the constraints on a judge for just doing what he or she prefers? How should a judge judge? What's the proper role? So here's a, this is maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a weird question, but what what do you think the proper role of the subconscious is in law? You know what I mean? Because part of what Holmes is saying in this, in this passage, the, the, the end of which I just read, is that judges may not even be aware of the choices in front of them. They talk with authority, citing precedent or citing logic or citing morality. They talk with authority as if there is not a choice before them. And it's not always that they're mistaken, but they may subconsciously be fixing in place the status quo, which is something Holmes accuses them of here, um, either directly or subconsciously. That, in fact, socialism makes the wealthy fearful and... They've sought to use elite institutions to lock in place rules preserving their wealth that they couldn't get in the political branches, which were beginning to take notice of workplace conditions and working hours and income tax and and, and things like that. But if the courts had to justify in explicitly social utility terms, then this end run wouldn't work. It's because the courts can cite a rule that looks like logic or looks like morality or looks like deep legal principle And it looks like it shuts off the argument. 
Okay. So I think we'll move on from there and, and get to the last, um, the last point of Holmes's attack, the attack on history as an endpoint. This is an attack on purely precedential reasoning, an attack on the idea of just using precedent as controlling of the present. And all I'm going to do here is read you one quote and ask you to reflect on the, the meaning of this quote, how it fits in with the rest of the piece and how it informs the rest of this section. Knowing history is the first step toward an enlightened skepticism. That is, towards a deliberate reconsideration of the worth of those rules. When you get the dragon out of his cave, onto the plain, and in the daylight, you can count his teeth and claws and see just what is his strength. But to get him out is only the first step. The next is either to kill him, or to tame him and make him a useful animal. For the rational study of the law, the black-letter man may be the man of the present, but the man of the future is the man of statistics and the master of economics. It's revolting to have no better reason for a rule of law than that so it was laid down in the time of Henry IV. It's still more revolting if the grounds on which it was laid down have vanished long since, and the rule simply persists from blind imitation of the past. Okay, and, and finally on to legal theory and Holmes's, if, if not logic, morality, or precedent. What is it to be good at law? What is it to know the law? What is it to practice and make the law? And for this, I think the closest we'll get to a, an actionable kind of positive theory, you can find the bottom of page 40. It begins with, no, the way to gain a liberal view of your subject is not to read something else, but to get to the bottom of the subject itself. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to take another look at that and to tell me what you think about it. What do you think Holmes' theory is? But this more general concern with getting to the bottom of things, I think it's quite beautiful and encapsulates what we're going to try to do in this class. We're going to think about what it means to get to the bottom of various parts of the law. And in particular, think about all the things that we normally take for granted, all the things that we just assume away. When someone asks you to write a memo or write a brief about something, you know, that you can't even think about doing that without just ignoring many choices that others have made. You make so many assumptions when you put pen to paper and you write a brief. So many assumptions that about things which could be, which could be otherwise. And, and part of theory is kind of waking up to all of those assumptions. It's waking up to the idea that things could be really different and therefore examining why they're not. You know, what is it about our practice or what is it about us that makes us practice law in this way? So we're going we're gonna to go through and, you know, and, and talk about this quite a bit in different contexts as the course goes along. But I, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with two ideas. And this is at the very end of Holmes's piece. And these are defenses of theory and defenses of thinking deeply about the law. Holmes says that theory is the most important part of the dogma of the law, as the architect is the most important man who takes part in the building of a house. <laughs> now, you might disagree with this. Um, if there's nothing but architectural plan, then there is no house. I guess if there's no architect at all, then there also is no house. But, you know, Holmes really believes the most important improvements of the last 25 years are improvements in theory. Here, I'm reading here. It's not to be feared as unpractical, for to the competent, it simply means going to the bottom of the subject. For the incompetent, it's sometimes as true, as has been said, that an interest in general ideas means an absence of particular knowledge. An interest in theory is an interest in understanding something more deeply, and so the truly competent lawyer is able to see things from both levels, both particularity 
and to see the thing in its general aspect. Okay, and I want to leave you finally with this, which is Holmes' vision of the value of the practice of law and the value of of thinking deeply about law. Uh, and remember, this is a speech to to law students and others who are about to go into the world, and he's he wants to fill them with what he sees as kind of the right ambition. To an imagination of any scope, the most far-reaching form of power is not money, it's the command of ideas. If you want great examples, read Mr. Leslie Stevens' History of English Thought in the 18th Century and see how a hundred years after his death, the abstract speculations of Descartes had become a practical force controlling the conduct of men. Read the works of the great German jurists and see how much more the world is governed today by Kant than by Bonaparte. We can't all be Descartes or Kant, but we all want happiness. And happiness, I'm sure, from having known many successful men, can't be won simply by being counsel for great corporations and having an income of $50,000. An intellect great enough to win the prize needs other food besides success. The remoter and more general aspects of the law are those which give it universal interest. It's through them that you not only become a great master in your calling, but connect your subject with the universe and catch an echo of the infinite, a glimpse of its unfathomable process, a hint of the universal law. Okay, I'll leave you there, other than to say that, one, $50,000 then is about $1.5 million today. And how curious that Holmes ends this piece by suggesting a glimpse of the universal law in a piece which is so much about the non-existence of universal law. Okay, think on that. See you guys soon.